0: Today on the podcast, I have a very special guest to share with you. Many of you know that this past February, I got engaged, and (laughs) as much as I am not one to bring people on the podcast just for the sake of introducing them, and even less am I someone who wants to talk a lot about my personal life, it's just not the way that I um, typically operate in the public sphere. I have been excited to bring Riley on the show because as a 15-year veteran of the photography industry, I, and I maybe I'm a little biased, but I think he has a lot of really great insight to share. So this is a bit of a longer episode because I didn't really approach it with a list of questions that we I wanted to tackle. I just wanted to explore some ideas with him. But I think it's going to be well worth your time. So ladies and gentlemen, my fiance. Welcome to This Can't Be That Hard. My name is Anami Tonkin and I help photographers run profitable, sustainable businesses that they love. Each week on the podcast, I cover simple, actionable strategies and systems that photographers at every level of experience can use to earn more money in a more sustainable way. Running a photography business doesn't have to be that hard. You can do it, and I can show you how. Riley McLean, welcome to This Can't Be That Hard. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well, Annamie Tonkin. (laughs) Thank you for welcoming me to This Can't Be That Hard.
0: Well, what are we, 150, 60-some-odd episodes in? Seems like a good time to introduce my fiancé.
1: I had to wait to see if the podcast was going to be a serious thing for you before... (laughs)
0: <laughs> before you were willing to subject yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah. You had to talk to everyone you knew personally before I made it down in the list.
0: Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, this is, it's uh new territory. I had that one episode where I interviewed Oliver and then, um, and then here you are. It's the final frontier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know your relationship is serious when you get invited on your partner's podcast.
1: I know. It's a whole new level. It's uh, it's a whole new level to our relationship, I suppose. There you go. Yeah.
0: Well, I am excited, nervous to have you here. I um, have thought for a while that it would be fun to bring you on. Not only are you an important person in my life, but you are also an extremely talented photographer and have lots to say about the subject of photography. But, um, but yeah, you know me. I'm a little, like, I always get a little weird when it comes to <laughs> talking about my personal life. And so, um, so, anyway, when we got engaged in February, I was like, okay, the time has arrived. It's time to bring Riley on.
1: Well, you know, I post uh, regularly to my social medias. I think my last uh, active post was two years ago maybe longer and then my professional uh, Instagram page was managed by you for at least three years before that so yeah. yeah
0: mostly because I was like this is really an important thing for you to do and you're like I can't be bothered if you want to do it you should do it
1: yeah yeah no I did didn't bring me any joy so I was happy to um, pass that along to literally anyone
0: my private introverted, Fiance coming on my podcast. I know this is huge for you, and I really do appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So um, there are several things that I'm excited to chat with you about today, but I figured uh, we should probably start by giving a little of our backstory.
1: Yeah, sure. That sounds that sounds great.
0: People hear me talk all the time. Why don't Why don't you tell the story
1: um, of how we met? Pe- people like hearing you talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, uh, we met, uh, I guess, a little over 10 years ago at a photographer's networking event in an adjacent city to where the town we were living in. Um, and I was having some kind of conversation, and you promptly walked up and kind of joined the conversation.
0: Can I tell you why?
1: Sure, sure, yeah.
0: I was... I had myself sort of talked myself into going to this networking event because I was like, I need to meet other photographers. But as happy as I am to talk, like, all day long, once someone is interested in talking to me, I have a really hard time butting into conversations. (laughs) Like, I have a hard time inserting myself in social situations where I don't know people. And so that was a pure move of desperation. I think you looked like a friendly person, and I was like, "I'll go talk in the group that that guy's talking in."
1: Well, I mean, I, I the people who are comfortable butting into a like a a networking event and joining people and saying hello, the people who are good at that and and truly enjoy it are uh, a complete mystery to me <laughs> because I don't know how you one gets comfortable and proficient at doing that, but I don't possess that skill so. Yeah. It was Anyway. Anyway. Uh, yeah, you came and joined a conversation, and quickly we, we realized that, um, you know, we lived in the same town. And I had been photographing weddings at that point for, like, four years, but recently moved to North Carolina. And I was desperate to find other photographers just uh, to, you know, be part of a community. But also, I needed someone to help me photograph weddings. Right. Desperately. At that point, I was flying over from the west coast any friend that would help me shoot a wedding just so i could start to get jobs here
0: which in retrospect is hilarious given what your margins were at that point that you would add a, someone else's flight to your uh, to take a bite out of your profit.
1: The only one who had good profit margins in those days were the airlines.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. when it came to your wedding. I know.
1: So, yeah, we we met we were talking and i think we were we were chatting for like under 45 minutes uh, before you pointed out that my pricing was ridiculous. <laughs> and what I was charging was sounds
0: about right. <laughs> Was not appropriate
1: for a professional photographer.
0: I was like, wait, you're flying people in and you charge what?
1: Yeah, it was. Um, well, you have to understand. So I studied photography in college and they didn't teach you anything about actually being a photographer. I studied art. And then I graduated, and a really good friend of mine and fantastic wedding photographer, Matt Thielen, gave me a job. We were rock climbing together. He taught me to climb, and um, and I, that's really all I wanted to do was make photos and climb. And, um, and he gave me a job, and I just remember looking down at the couple hundred-dollar check being like, yes, if I could just do this a couple times per month, I wouldn't need to get a job, <laughs> like, ever. I could just keep doing this. And then I moved to North Carolina, and the rock climbing became a lot more scarce, and uh, I didn't have any friends or job prospects, photography or otherwise. And so, yeah, I joined this networking event and decided maybe I should meet some photographers and try to actually run a business.
0: Well, I'm ga- I'm glad that uh, I gave you some pushback in some regard, because in the beginning of like when I first knew you, and actually this persists to this day, um. although it has changed right. in scope by quite a bit. <laughs> oh. I was super intimidated. I was probably, like, wielding my little bit of business knowledge at that point um, in the face of, like, some pretty significant imposter syndrome. I think I was, like, a year and a half into business at that point, and I still had some soft spots in my technical understanding of photography and you, I guess now I know, like coming from art school as a background, you were all tech. Like you knew all the stuff about the cameras. And I remember the first wedding that we photographed together, I was second shooting for you. And I noticed like halfway through, maybe a quarter of the way through, I was like, he keeps telling me to photograph, you know, go photograph these, rings or the whatever and then i would watch as you would like go behind me and do the same photo i was like he does not think that i know what i'm doing i mean
1: i thought you were blowing it i was (laughs) like the way you photograph uh, to this day in fact is very strange you you adopt very odd poses and you go find a strange location to you know to create your compositions and at the time And my history of meeting new photographers and working with them didn't inspire a lot of confidence. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, my career is actually over.
0: (laughs) Well, I didn't know at that point anything about your backstory or like your bad experiences. And I didn't have enough confidence in my own, I don't know, skill or whatever at that point to just be like, what, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. But I remember you kept asking to look at the back of my camera, and I was like, ah, no. So I probably was adding fuel to your concerned fire. That was
1: awful. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, I mean, after I received your uh, your photos, comparing the two of ours was a really humbling experience for me because uh, mine were technically better than yours, but yours were objectively better than mine. Like, they, you know... I mean, it. You can have a perfectly exposed image that's boring. Does not stand up to something that is, you know, bad technical ability, but is the actual image. So I was like, okay, I can learn a thing or two from this, and I could probably teach you a thing or two about the dials on that camera you're holding around. Ah.
0: <laughs> <Aww. laughs> well, it was uh, as it turns out a, a good partnership.
1: Yeah, I mean, early. I mean, I think I certainly felt really lonely in the in the business. Um, being a photographer is, I feel like it can be an isolating career and there are wonderful communities now, but 10 years ago it felt, it didn't feel like the same way it does now. And so, yeah, having that, um, you know, that kinship in art and entrepreneurship very early on was a comforting thing.
0: I would go so far as to say that's sort of like a game-changing thing. And although I agree that like these days there's a lot more opportunity for community, at least in the online space, in some ways I think that that coupled (laughs) in no small part with a pandemic has uh, maybe hindered people's willingness or ability to go out and create live in-person community with other photographers. And I agree with you 100%. Like I feel like In these industries where we are operating alone and we're kind of going it alone all the time, um, that ability to just talk shop with somebody or, um, you know, you get like a nasty email from a client and you want to respond and the other person is like, whoa, 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 let me help you write that.
1: Yeah, before you realized how awful a copywriter I am, you let me do some drafts for you.
0: <laughs> no, that's not what I mean. I mean, not like from a writing skill, but, you know, when you're upset about something, it's uh, it, it's easy to say something that doesn't come off as purely professional.
1: Well, and I am uh, extremely guilty of this, where my photographs are very personal to me, and it took me years, like, maybe 10 years, my first 10 years in business before I learned to make photos that other people might want. I mean, I was working as a wedding photographer the entire time. And in the, you know, the secondary or tertiary goal was always to make photos that people loved. Obviously, I wanted people to like them and to get paid and not get, you know, in trouble. But I wanted to impress myself each time. And I think that's a really, you know, when then someone comes back and they're like, I don't, I don't like what you did everything feels personal and you want to like stand up and stomp your foot down and be like, how dare, how dare you? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I think the big difference for me, I mean, obviously it's important to me that people love their photos and that sort of thing. But from the get go, when I decided that I wanted photography to be a career, the money was so important. Like I needed to make it work financially in order to justify leaving my quote unquote, real job. And um, I, therefore, would be willing to put, you know, whatever it was like I needed to make a photo that checked this box. Okay, I'll go out and do that. You were I always felt maybe my imposter syndrome around you in the beginning really came from the fact that I met you and I was like, that guy's an artist and I am just faking it until I make it. (laughs)
1: well now in hindsight you know you talked you talk a lot about cost of goods <laughs> in businesses and that math and oh, yeah, I you watched were
0: terrible I watched that.
1: I watched you make a career with one kind of mediocre prosumer camera and a lens and I have stacks of medium format large format film cameras I had you know duplicates of every digital lens I had a wide format printer and was making fine art prints for everyone postcards. I was going to, I mean, everything just list off the expensive ways you can um, spend money that clients don't particularly care about, or at least the market that I was servicing. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was hilarious, but I was into that. I liked messing around with printmaking and all of that. It just didn't serve my, it didn't serve my business all that well for many years.
0: Not to mention the $25,000 $25,000 worth of equipment that you purchased and now store to make tintypes.
1: Okay, well, we, we've been debating about this for some time. <laughs> uh, I would defend, uh, so to back up, tintype <laughs> photography, those are the photos from the 1860s where, uh, you know, you pour chemicals on a plate, put that giant plate while it's still wet into a big old camera and make an exposure of someone and then run to a darkroom and develop it before those chemicals dry. So they're really cool, I think, um, but they're hard to make and really expensive to make. Um, So I thought as part of my business, I would, you know, offer tin types to people, um, which is not an original idea, but it was really fun. And, but people still, enough people didn't know what it was that it was like, okay, please pay me $50 for one, but it probably cost me $48 to make a single one plus $25,000 in equipment. Right. I defend that decision now as a marketing ploy to differentiate myself in the wedding photography business. But at the time, I was pretty convinced it was a viable business uh, option.
0: Yeah. And and you did well with it. You were chugging along, which actually kind of brings me to the crux of what I want to talk to you about today, um, which is the fact that you are no longer working as a photographer. Now, I have interviewed... I don't know, approaching 100 people on this show over the course of the past couple of years. And I believe that you are the first retired photographer that I've had the pleasure of having on the show. And so um, I am curious to have you share a little bit about how you came to the decision that you were ready to make an exit, why, and kind of, you know, what the next steps are because you're not retiring at the, at the age of retirement. It's not like you're (laughs) playing golf and (laughs) like, uh, I don't know whatever retired people do, but, um, you know, you've got sort of a new career trajectory happening.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting thing to come on a, a photography business podcast and talk about leaving the photography professional photography world. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's um, I worked uh, full time for 15 years. I studied photography uh, in college before that. And it has been my only career and really my only interest for that entire time. And for many years, including current ones, I really felt like if I wanted to go get a different job, trying to explain why I should be hired and get paid you know, more than minimum wage and have lots of vacation time seemed like a tall order. Um, but, you know, it, it became obvious after about 10 years or so that I was getting pretty worn down by the logistics of being a, a wedding photographer. It's a lot of pressure on very few days throughout the year, tons of communication with wedding planners and venues. Um, I had been working to shoot more and more um, high-end weddings. And I realized kind of 75% down that path that I didn't really enjoy those types of weddings nearly as much. And I just kind of struggled around to find my perfect um, set of clients that spoke to me. I loved many, many of my clients. Actually, almost all of them uh, hold very special places in my heart. But the logistics of the wedding industry were very tiring to me, and I didn't feel um, creatively challenged by it anymore. I felt worried about getting sued or breaking my leg on the way to a wedding or disappointing people, and I just felt like it was a hard it was a hard place to make good art from when you're feeling defensive. And you saw it, I think, for years. Um, and we're trying to help me navigate, you know, my business as you do for many people to find your bluebird clients and do that and i and i really felt like i did but i was just tired and i wanted to be an amateur photographer i wanted to go back to not feeling that same level of financial pressure that i had put on myself mm-hmm. i am an ambitious person and i love the game and the charts and the of you know, running a successful business and it was part of my identity, but the the pursuit of that ambition at the expense of the types of work that I was doing, just it wasn't me, and I didn't um, I didn't feel like making a change ultimately.
0: Well, one of the things that <laughs> was always hard for you uh, was that you really connected with your clients in such a way that you. And you you build this to them, like you said to them. You know we're gonna get to know each other, and I'm gonna come and photograph your wedding. But I'm, I want to be part of the day. And um, <laughs> one of my one of my favorite cute little Rileyisms uh-huh. is that you you would you got so frustrated over time by the constant battle about vendor meals that you. Went out and purchased a very fancy bento box situation and would bring your own meal and make a big deal about, like, no, no, don't you pay those caterers for my vendor meal. Because you had so many wedding planners who would be like, oh, you would have had a conversation with the couple ahead of time, right? And they would have been like, of course, you're going to just eat with us, da, da, da. And then this, like, dry chicken sandwich would arrive after you had been at work for nine hours.
1: <laughs> I mean I, I, I do have a I do have a very a very strong opinion about the vendor meal uh, globally as a thing. Everyone at a wedding, uh, every different vendor is working at the ends of saving their own businesses, providing a good service to two people mm-hmm. and everyone else doesn't matter, mm-hmm. particularly other people who are paid at, you know employees of that event. So as a photographer, I felt like I'm going to work really hard in the heat, in the freezing, with the cold, with, like, a broken leg or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, I'll be shaking and There's from that hunger. time you had the flu. I had the flu. I mean, now we don't work with those kinds of illnesses on board. Right. But, um, I mean, it was just like, yeah, I had the flu. I was so sick. I barely remember shooting that wedding. Um, and... Yeah, and then you go to eat and there's no food for you and you're like violently shaking, being like, okay, now I'm going to work another six hours without food. Yeah. But what
0: I saw was just, it was like, and I didn't know you for the first half of your career, but certainly when I first met you, you were a lot more willing to kind of overlook that sort of thing and not get frustrated by it. But by the end, it was like the politics of weddings and weddings over the course of those 15 years definitely became a much bigger business And so there was like, oh, I'm going to have to, you know, go network with this wedding planner to get on her good side and da, da, da. Anyway, your heart wasn't in that. You loved your art. You loved your clients. But everything else was just bumming you out. And I could see it.
1: I mean, I felt like all of my 90% of my effort was going into getting better at being part of this wedding industry and not um, constantly improving my craft. And I just, yeah, I didn't feel it. And then the pandemic happened, and completely erased my, um, completely erased my wedding business. And that gave me some time to really think about, like, well, what would it look like to, to not do this?
0: Well, you were always like, I was saying for a couple of years, was saying, what's the next step in riley McLean's career like what are you going to do because this it seems like you're on your way out of photography and you were like yeah 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 i agree and then somebody would call and be like here's $6,000, you'd be like, okay, let's book another wedding.
1: Well, yeah. If you're not working and no one calls you, you have nothing going on. You're right. just, you nothing have to a, lose. nothing to lose. Yeah. You're just sitting there. But if someone calls and says, can I give you $6,000 and you say no, now that day off has a very specific price attached to right. it. And who is anyone to say no to 500, a thousand, $10,000 on a given time, if you're not doing anything else. Right. And so, yeah, it was. It felt like a really privileged place to be where my phone would ring and someone would offer me a job and I'd just say yes because I didn't have a reason not to. But um, back to tintype tin photography, y- you know, years ago I felt like the photography business is hard. You have a high season and a low season and you have to be, I felt like I had to be really proactive to plan for when you're not as busy so that you financially... Um, and professionally um, so that you can survive long periods of time potentially without getting paid. So I was like, okay, if I can make a $1,000 a month, tin types, then, you know, I'll it'll balance off the kind of the tumultuous nature of the wedding photography season. And that turned out to be a negative $3,000 a month uh, plan.
0: <laughs> Who <laughs> but knew? I, I
1: was having a good time doing it. Um, so then I, you know, I bought a house and I had a spare bedroom and I decided like hey if I Airbnb this bedroom that I'm not using maybe it'll make a thousand dollars a month and help me make my mortgage payment and that turned out to be true and I really enjoyed it so for three or so years while I was shooting weddings I was also hosting guests as a, as an Airbnb host and during that time I was like oh you know maybe I could Build a tiny house somewhere or something, and my neighbors right next door to me, this older couple who I adored, decided to sell their home. And after pacing around in the driveway for a little while, I approached them and asked if I could purchase their home from them, and uh, and that really started off this kind of side hustle. That is my thousand dollar a month goal uh, to balance off my photography career was going to be hosting guests on Airbnb.
0: Hang on, guys. I have a quick message for you. Did you know that This Can't Be That Hard isn't the only podcast I host? Each month, my marketing director, Dana, and I team up to bring you a fresh injection of marketing ideas and inspiration on our other podcast called The Consistency Club. The podcast is free and available to any photographer looking to uplevel their marketing game, or you can take it one step further and join the Consistency Club, where you get the extended version of the podcast, along with monthly email and social media templates, bonus trainings, and special access to the live marketing events we host twice a year. If you're interested in tuning in, you can search for and subscribe to the Consistency Club wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join us in the membership, you can visit go.thiscan'tbethathard.com club to sign up. And so what started out as this thousand dollar month goal by the time the pandemic hit was getting close to kind of equaling your your wedding revenue
1: yeah I had for year for three years not thought of uh, Airbnb as anything more than a side hustle and because my photography business was doing serving me just fine um, for my lifestyle and my needs um, all of the Airbnb income was going back into improving the gardens or then planning to build a tiny house or something like that. And we had had discussions even, you know, before the pandemic, you felt like I was dedicating enough energy to Airbnb projects that I was going to have to choose very soon which one was going to stick because both were becoming very demanding and stressful to have both at the same time. So luckily I actually listened to that advice and I paused my, you know, all of my Airbnb projects, the spending um, on those projects. And a couple of months later, the pandemic shut down both businesses. Right. And I was like, "Uh oh, this is a new problem.
0: Here you were trying to like diversify your income. And COVID was like a silver bullet that took both of them out in one fell stroke.
1: I mean, photography, sure. It's everyone knows it's, a, it's considered a luxury, right. but a uh, travel industry. Right. And it's like, that was, yeah, I mean, that was, that was, that was scary for a couple of months. Well,
0: and lucky you, lucky us that it was only a couple of months.
1: But I mean, so when, when my photography business evaporated in the beginning of the pandemic and I, like everyone in the photography industry was scrambling to reschedule for people and everyone was really nervous. And my bank account went to, you know, from income to zero income and then negative income. um, I like that was kind of my worst fear running a business. You have no more business. Right. And when that happened, pardon me, I had time to pause and think like, okay, do I am I going to really fight to rebuild this business or not? And I sat there for a long time uh, and decided not to. But it was a hard decision because when you work at something so hard, it becomes more than your career. It's an identity.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, I didn't know how that was going to work out.
0: And there, you know, it's an interesting thing. I feel like we, I don't know if this is a cultural thing or what, but to your point about it feeling like an identity, as business owners, I think about this sometimes my business is not something that I am ever going to sell, right? Like in the normal entrepreneurial world, if you build a business, when you're ready to retire, you sell it to somebody else, oftentimes. That is not true for the vast majority of photographers. Like maybe if you build a big studio, you can sell that studio. But for the most part, we are our businesses. And so even the most successful photographer over the course of time, whenever it's time for them to retire, there's this sense of like, You close the door and put up the closed sign for the last time. And it's like, there's this, it's like sad. It feels a little bit like failure. Like I watched you. I mean, we were all going through the emotional roller coaster of 2020 anyway. And you were really, I felt like grieving the end of this business, even though it was very much time.
1: Yeah. When our accountant called and said, so this is your last and final tax return. Are we shutting down your your business account, I mean, I froze. I had like this moment of panic being like, no, I didn't fail. It wasn't a failure, or I think you told me that. I was like, my business failed. I had a, you know, everyone knows that photography is a tough business, and most small businesses fail, which is why I think you've had so much fun with This Can't Be That Hard is helping people understand how to run a business from the beginning so they can have fun doing it and not – fail at it right. for lack of a better word but when it was time for me to shut down my business and move on i did not uh internalize that as a success it felt very much like a loss and people would ask like well what do you do for a work and after saying something for you know almost 20 years even before making money as a photographer it was like well i'm an artist <laughs> obviously <laughs> then people would be like oh what do you do for work and i'd be like shut up that's a personal question <laughs> And then I started telling people I was unemployed or a trophy boyfriend right. uh, next to you, which you felt like was unfair because people started looking at me like I was like an unemployed, like layabout who was not doing anything. Right. Um, but I realized that you know, in through I'm sure no one would be surprised to hear that after we stop working or you stop working, we continue talking about entrepreneurship and sustainable businesses over glasses of wine, basically seven days a week.
0: It's I'm boring a, that way, you guys. Yeah, I'm basically a one-trick pony. <laughs> <laughs> this is really what I love. It's really what I think <laughs> and talk about all the time.
1: No, that's what I, I mean, I love it, too. Um, we have certainly be grateful de-
0: you can hit pot, stop on your podcast. Yeah, we, Riley has to listen to me all the time. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thank you, Apple, for noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> uh, no, the, so I realized, you know, certainly in the beginning um, of starting hosting on Airbnb and then um, when the pandemic happened, that photography and that industry hosting guests were very similar. Their hospitality industries, good photographs really help um, create a scene. As photographers, we're always looking for beautiful places to make our compositions and portraits. And then playing around with gardening and real estate, I I'm now creating the spaces that I think are going to capture lovely light or create an experience for people. And I, yeah, I felt really, I felt really satisfied doing that.
0: Let me ask you a question. You sort of tossed out there that both photography and hosting on Airbnb are hospitality. Now I think most people listening are like, yep, Airbnb is a hospitality gig. But what do you mean when you say that about photography?
1: We I'm, if you're working in, I always thought about it as retail photography, like you, the person that you're photographing is your client. So they pay you and then you give them the images and their opinion is the one that matters. The experience that you give them, how they feel about their images and how they feel about you, and the, the whole process from first contact of email through handing them or delivering them their final result, whatever that may be, is part of a hospitality process in my mind. Mm -hmm. And if, I mean, you can be a genius and people will work with you if you are a genius, but everyone will hate you the whole time. And you can be a really mediocre photographer, but everyone absolutely loves you and you'll get some work too. And so you kind of have to, I felt like uh, as a hospitality thing, you have to pick and choose how you want to, where you want to place your energy and what kind of experience you want for people. And I feel the same way uh, as a hospitality process, working, actually talking to people and photographing them and delivering them prints, albums or digital files, as I did then creating uh, a space where someone can show up on vacation or for work or for hospital treatment or whatever, show up, feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. feel like that sense of relief, like, ah, this is going to be nice or, you know, whatever experience they're hoping for. And then they experience wherever they are and they leave. You know, we send messages and create suggestions. It's the same. It really is the same thing. A lot of the email templates that I had for wedding clients were very minorly adjusted to just to work with people traveling.
0: I think that that is like the piece of this conversation that I hope everyone takes away. Because I truly believe that when you are learning how to run a photography business, you could shut down your photography business at any point and you are bringing a set of like especially anybody who's listening to making the wonderful decision to listen to this podcast <laughs> is investing in learning about creating an experience for their client because ultimately what you're describing comes down to empathy you are putting yourself in the position of the person you are trying to serve and figuring out like what is it that they need what is it that they want what are their pain points and they're like soft spots, and how can I help them? And when you do that successfully, whether it's as a photographer or an Airbnb host or just about any other career track, you will do well. You will find your people and you will succeed.
1: Yeah, 10, ten years ago, you pointed out that I wasn't running a profitable or sustainable business. Mm-hmm. It was a, It was a really <laughs> expensive hobby that was just barely keeping me from having to actually get a job Uh, making minimum wage, which Mm -hmm. would have been an improvement. Uh, Not on my time, but certainly on my bank account. And if I I took that, really, all of our (laughs) debates to heart in that if you are running a sustainable business, however that is set up, um, and you're saving a little bit of money, you can buffer the downsides. I certainly had down periods in my photography business and then it also opened up the uh, opportunity to look at something else, be it an opportunity in the photography business, or in um, in my my case would be buying another house mm-hmm. uh, that really made that possible. Uh, my career as a photographer built my now career as uh, I don't know a real estate entrepreneur. I don't know what to call it. That doesn't roll off the tongue. That sounds terrible. He's
0: still (laughs) adjusting to the new. I don't know how to
1: say that. If someone asks what I do for a living, I'll probably still say it's too personal a question.
0: I'm a. I'm a. uh, Yeah, I don't know. You have to come up with a title.
1: Well, people think about like, well, I'm an I'm an Airbnb host as like, oh, I scam hundreds of people out of. Right. What's that called? Apartment arbitrage or something? It's awful.
0: Right. I'm a slumlord. I'm a slumlord.
1: Yeah. No. Um, But I mean, we like we talk tons about sustainable business practices. And uh, the importance of saving and whatever you want to do. And that is, uh, I mean, that's what made this happen for me, at least.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you are, as much as I I love that you're giving me all this credit for being such a business person, but um, we, again, have really helped each other. I feel like when we were, not only did you help me with the technical side of my photography game, but, um, but really, uh, my money mindset, which I've talked about on this show before prior to like in the beginning of my career, I was my whole, like, well, I'm going to charge a whole bunch of money because I've run my numbers and I need to. That was based in like 100% need. I couldn't be a photographer without making a bunch of money because I had two little kids to support and like half a household to support. Later, when I got divorced and I was in this extreme area, like mental space of scarcity, where I was just like, I have no money and I have so much pressure on my, like the career that I love and I want this to work and da, da, da. And you were very good as my friend at that point in saying, like, these are just numbers. They are not going to bite you. We can make this, you know, you can run these numbers and figure this out. And. I feel like it was that kind of headspace where I put my thinking cap on um, and was able to put my thinking cap on because you helped me get out of that um, fear cycle. And that was like, from there, I feel like Simple Sales was born because I was like, there are different ways to make things work. I just have to get creative. So again, I'll come back to like having a friend in your corner when you're in a solo business um, is just so incredibly valuable.
1: I think as an entrepreneur, we avoid, like, it's really easy to just shuffle the tasks that we don't like doing into the closet. Mm -hmm. And for most of us, that's accounting and finance, like, what do I charge and how much does it actually cost to be in business? And I um, hired an accountant really early on and um, don't mind talking about money, but I had no idea how much it cost me to actually be in business. It was hilariously, um, the numbers were awful. Like
0: You also had an extremely inexpensive lifestyle at well,
1: that point. Well, I mean, that's what I had uh, an expensive Australian Shepherd, and he wasn't <laughs> expensive to buy. He had expensive taste, <laughs> from my opinion. Um, but I, yeah, I didn't have any expenses really whatsoever. I could live on $5,000 a month or $400 a month right. if need be. But I knew, I mean, I credit my. My parents for this actually. My dad was self-employed, and when he, it became obvious that I was going to try to start my own business, he told me straight away when I had twelve cents to rub between my fingers that I needed to save enough money to live for six months. And I didn't know how to do that. And when I started working and saving money, you know, some a car would break down or something, and all that savings would go away. But I knew that it was important to have that buffer, just because I didn't want to go get a job. Right. Like if you have a little bit of a cushion and something goes, whatever, goes not the way you think it's going to go, you don't actually have to hit the panic button. Right. You have time to adjust looking at the panic button. Yeah. I mean, it's flashing over there, but. um, And so, yeah, my, I mean, we, we joke a lot, or I think we talk a lot about how my motto is time and pressure (laughs) building something was like, okay, if I just save $10 off of every photo shoot you know, maybe I'll be able to actually afford some of this equipment that I'm purchasing. Um, And then over the course of 15 years, it was like, okay, if I responsibly run my numbers and save, maybe I'll be able to buy a house. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and you are, uh, one of the things that I love that you have shared with me, but in particular with my kids that you have talked to them about is compound math. Like you have played the savings game from a very early age in a way that like i never knew how to do and i never did and it has served you well in terms of that sort of the long game
1: yeah the i mean that's the time and pressure thing the compound math in short is save a hundred dollars now and invest it in some kind of whatever that earns a small amount of interest and a hundred dollars now in 50 years could be worth a lot of money but if you start saving in 49 years you have to have $500,000 $500,000 right. to deposit. And so as, an, as a, an artist, I felt like if I saved $100 a month or $500 a month or whatever, whatever that number was in 10 years, that might actually look like a legitimate savings account. And, uh, and I, I mean, I still, we talk about that plenty, mm-hmm. the importance of it. And again, it goes back to you're running a business, you want it to be stable and as, you know, as we are, I became, like, more responsible and had overhead, it was like, oh, maybe I should have medical insurance. <laughs> fancy like, that. Fancy that. Yeah, medical insurance. Or dogs are expensive. Kids are expensive.
0: Right.
1: We should take a vacation that doesn't go on a credit card. Right. Um, yeah. So that's, I mean, I, that's what I geek out about. Yeah. Uh, that and gardening these days.
0: Well, let McLean. plane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna keep saying your name. That's, um this wasn't anywhere near as painful as I thought it was gonna be. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, there we go. That's the compliment of the of the week right oh, there.
0: No, I um I you know, obviously you know that I think that you've got so many wonderful insights and tidbits to share. Um but uh but yeah, this was I feel like not only was it Nice sitting and chatting with you here in the tiny podcast recording room. But it's also, uh, I do think that you have so much insight and you saw this career over a long period of time and learned a lot of lessons at the beginning, at the middle, and at the end. And you're the very first person to come on the show who gets to tell that
1: uh-huh. sort of the wrap up. And that's a weird, it's, it's, that feels weird. Still feels weird. What did you tell me before coming on here? You said, don't, don't lecture people about accountants and retirement planning what else was it it was a whole list of things i wasn't allowed to come on and i
0: mean there are business topics that put even me to sleep come on
1: i know okay hire an accountant everyone. but
0: the boring ones are often the ones that are the most important i do think that that is a uh, a good lesson to share yeah so anyway
1: yeah.
0: well i love you i love you that's the first time I've ever said that at the end of an interview.
1: Maybe if you start signing off on all of your <laughs> interviews like that. <laughs> well, that would be weird. Pet names. Okay. All right. Goodbye, sweetie. Thanks for coming on. Hun. Hun honey bun.
0: <laughs> all right. See you next time. Adios. Well, that's it for this week's episode of This Can't Be That Hard. I'll be back same time, same place next week. In the meantime, you can find more information about this episode, along with all the relevant links, notes, and downloads at thiscan'tbethathard.com learn. If you like the podcast, be sure to hit the subscribe button. Even better, share the love by leaving a review in iTunes. And as always, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you have a fantastic week.